Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Again, I mean, life is going to entail suffering and going through the experience of divorce is going to entail suffering, just like trying to work it out. Because we are in a society where there's hardly any encouragement to try to work it out anymore. Hello, friends of the Austin Institute, and once more, welcome to our show, our podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About, and what an episode we have for you today. As you can see, today, again, uh, we are here with a live guest, and we will talk about something that makes us, the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture, truly unique. And also, we're going to talk about something that way too few people talk about, And almost nobody does anymore. Guess what? We're going to talk about marriage. And to talk about marriage and why, and and to talk about why it is good. It is good for us. It is good for society. Uh, We're very lucky to have with us today, Dr. Amy Hamilton, research associate at UT. Hello, Amy. Hello, Mariana. Thank you for having me. Thank you for accepting our invitation, for finding the time. I know you're very often very busy with research, with family. You are married, right? So you're one of those. There's very few. (laughs) As I said, I mean, you are a research associate at UT and uh, very recently you were a co-editor for the updating of a little booklet that the Witherspoon Institute, an institution as a friend of art, of of the Austin Institute, published, Marriage and the Public Good, 10 Principles. So you co-edited the updating of this little book. But before we go into the 10 principle and the little booklet and what it's for, why, how, when did you decide to study marriage and to become an expert as you are today on this topic? Oh, well, um, I appreciate the question. I had actually had the privilege of meeting Mark Regnerus right around the time that he founded the uh, Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. And we had corresponded on other issues. I was interested in gender and sexuality just for my own story and my own research in the past, um, what I had done my dissertation topic on and so forth. And so we, we talked a bit and he encouraged me to, to write and connect with public discourse and the Witherspoon Institute. And so I've been writing articles uh, on gender and sexuality for the public discourse for many years. And Mark and I had had fruitful conversations around those topics. When the update came around, he was the initial choice. Could you do the social science update? And he just didn't have the time. And so I was very blessed that he offered me uh, the chance to really engage with the literature and with uh, being a voice for uh, reiterating the importance of marriage and the uniqueness of marriage and the common good. And so I actually learned so much through doing the update. So it's just a privilege to come very late in a very important project. And uh, I think the timing of the release, you know, the update, we were, we were all kind of hoping it, I think that it could have gotten out sooner, but I think with the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act and so forth, that it's, it's a very timely publication to reiterate the reasons that uh, traditional marriage between man and woman is a unique institution that benefits everyone in society, even those who don't choose to partake of that uh, institution. I'm glad you, you just, you know, just anticipated my next question, which is, okay, marriage and the public good. And this booklet, as we will see in this principle, defends the idea and shows that there, there is evidence 
that marriage is good for society and for the participant and for anyone involved. But you just mentioned a traditional marriage, yes. uh, marriage in. So, what are the characteristics of the marriage that you say the book the booklet shows is the marriage that is good for society? And then maybe why that's the case. But like, what are the characteristics? What what do we need a marriage to be in order to be good for society? Well, the components of traditional marriage that are core to the institution and that can be found across cultures and throughout history and throughout, you know, the, the major religions, you know, but in, even in secular situations, this is just the core definition would be man and woman. So there's sexual complementarity and there's a monogamous exclusive commitment. So the sexual, sexual relationship is ordered within the marriage and is constrained to be within that marriage. So we've got complementary exclusive union was intended to be permanent right? Lifelong. And of course, with that comes the potential for fruitfulness in terms of the bearing of of children and procreation. And so I think that's why the state is interested in marriage, because this is what produces the next generation. There's also, I learned so much, there's just stabilizing influences and benefits throughout the generations and throughout the, the society. Again, whether or not you actually are married, but you accrue many benefits through being married. But it's through those four components. That's what that's what makes it a unique and enduring and a building block through the society. Before we go through each of these characteristics, and in order to have them hooked, right, and to make them want to continue to listen, yes. what is the most interesting? And since you've been working on these issues for a while now, and including working with Professor Ignaris, who's our president, as everyone knows here. What was the thing that you recently either remember or rediscovered that was just like... About marriage? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I think that... I think we've become so individualized in our life pursuits and our ideas about what personal fulfillment and personal happiness and so forth are. I think it's that... that isolated situation of like, if I'm married, I'm, I'm, I'm married, I'm happy. I stay in that marriage. If I'm happy, I get out if I'm not happy and so forth. But I think just realizing the, that, that there's a breadth and a wealth of, of, uh, of good that comes to the human person, the individual people that engage in this institution, but also just the way it spreads out through generations. And um, one of the things I was focused on was how we're kind of fixed on the synchronic slice of time. Like, let me take a snapshot of you. Are you happy right now? Mm. If you're not happy, then, you know, let's fix that. Let's change that, right? And so, you know, I can think back, I've been married now 15 years, you know, and I can think of some really exhausted times, you know, when I had young children and my life was very full. But I mean, in that snapshot, you know, there were times when I could compare happiness levels, you know, to, well, I would say I would look, was happier when I was single in that moment, right? But if you, we're talking about human flourishing across the lifespan, like what leads to a, a flourishing society and what leads to a flourishing life? And so I think when I just, I, when I see the ramifications through the lifespan of, you know, later on in life that, you know, marriage has a protective effect from suicide, uh, for males and for females. But, and one of those things is that, you know, the, that the more connected you are with meaningful life, meaning, meaningful structures and so forth, uh, or, or things that you feel have enduring value later in life, that's a huge predictor of happiness and of uh, a protective effect against suicide. And so who reports that more later in life? Well, it's people with children, right? People with, 
deeper family roots and with children that they've been raising. So that investment pays off. So there's, there's, there's investments that pay off, you know, later. And I think just looking at the robust picture, just, I didn't marry until I was 37. And I had lots of, you know, personal issues of why that wasn't the case, why I really wasn't open to marriage. And so I was just privileged to learn about, I didn't, had no idea about health benefits. I had no idea about if you could package marriage, all the health benefits that accrue in marriage to the individual people, if you could package that, you know, one health writer called it, you'd have to call it a wonder drug. I mean, these were just things that I learned by engaging in this research. I feel like if I'd have known, I might have, you know. Okay, can I, sorry, interrupting you. I agree because, of course, you know, I have my stories. Yes. And I agree with most of the things you say. I want to go back to this synchronic view of time. Please remind me if I forget. But before we get there, let me raise the objection that friends that I meet in bars, you know, raise immediately. What about men, bad marriages? Oh, of course. Now, listen, I, you have to be honest about what the data says. And the data actually shows that if you're in a high conflict marriage, right, that that actually can have a corrosive, corrosive effect on the health. And so the benefits that are, that are coming through marriage through reduced stress, right, lower inflammation, fewer incidences of disability, chronic disease, better recovery after surgery. If you're in a high conflict marriage, the opposite, you know, the opposite has been shown to be the case where there's actually, because you're in a stressful situation and that leads to, you know, inflammatory responses and so forth. So the very things that would enhance health in a negative marriage situation can actually work against the health. And the one, I've experienced this personally, the one aspect of marriage that actually doesn't, you know, pan out in terms of better health is weight gain. So that's the one aspect where when you're married, uh, you have to, you know, keep aware that, you know, marriage actually can uh, lead you not to, not to consider your weight as much, uh, both male and female. But, but that being said, Mariana, the thing is, is I think that we need to try to help people because divorce also has exactly. a very so let's negative go, effect. Let's go there because you talked about, we talk about marriage as a permanent union. Right. And we also all agree that there is a problem with divorce. At the same time, we are saying something that seems to contradict, right? So right. saying that there are situations where maybe a divorce is better. So I know that there is a there is a part of the book that addresses this right. and, and, you know, what are the principles that should guide this kind of choice. So right. can you tell us a little more about that? Well, the, I mean, I, I, in, in thinking about this, I just want to, I want to say that, you know, the corrosive effect of like this stressful relationship, that's true, but also there's health effects from actually going through the experience of a divorce. Even if maybe it's, a, it's you know, it's, there's no other choice. Uh, there's been heart health effects that have been found that, that are clear, uh, clearly attributed to the experience of divorce and aren't, aren't remediated. Even if you, you know, find a happy second union, quote unquote, and so forth, there's lasting health effects through that experience. And so I think what an achievable thing is to try to, to help people in, in their conflict, right? We know the difference between, uh, you know, when, back when it was, there was fault-based divorce, right? It was the three A's, right? Abandonment, adultery, or abuse. And so that, that's a reasonable thing that that's allowing the fact that there's, there needs to Which be- Which I think most of our listeners, I know that we, and I want to go back to that part. We know a lot of very mm-hmm. good people that are facing divorce, but you know, I, I would like to say, yes, you know, adultery, abandonment, abuse, please don't feel bad if 
you know, if your marriage didn't last and this was present. Right. right? I mean, see, the thing is, is that no, I'm here with no stones to throw. No one has any stones to throw because we're all living in a very broken culture and a broken society. Right. But I think that's why it's even more important to rearticulate the goods of marriage and to see what can we do? Because basically we, what we've, we just have had, let, let the floodgates open. Like no fault divorce, just let every floodgate open and washed away any kind of effort to shore up people in that synchronic slice of time where I'm very unhappy in this marriage or this is not going well, right? And so if we could reintroduce, you know, not, not trying to trap people in unhealthy or bad situations, but reintroduce the knowledge that actually, you know, going through a divorce is also going to harm your health. Is there any way we can reconcile this? We know you need help. I think especially in faith uh, situations where people are, you know, partaking of, of religious communities and so forth, they need to, we need to step up and say, we need to help people through the life cycle, get marriage mentors, get, you know, make things available to people. So to, to, to determine, you know, can this be reconciled? Because that is a preferable outcome. And, and I think the, the fact that we have no fault divorce where someone can exit a marriage as if easier than they can exit any other business contract. They can just null and void because I declare. And you uh, only need, you know, because many, you know, maybe the youngest people in the room, you know, in, in the audience don't know, you, you know, you're divorced against your will. Exactly. No full divorce means exactly. you are, one of the two asks for it and you're, you, you can't you do anything. You have no recourse, right? And so if we could put some speed bumps even down in the road, right? There were there are situations where I don't know honestly the current status, but there used to be like a, if there was a contested divorce, one person doesn't want it. There could be waiting periods, you know, a year or even multiple years, or a requirement to go, you know, to go to counseling. Or some have su- suggested a requirement that people would actually see and learn the social science about the effects on children if if they have children, so that people could stop and say you know, maybe we should try to work this out because especially if you have children, I've heard, I've heard Jennifer Robach Morris at, at uh, the Ruth Institute mention this, like you are going to be negotiating with that person, you know, the partner, the spouse, the rest of your life if you have children. And so for the sake of them, can we slow down instead of just, I'm in pain, I want out, you know? And so it's not about throwing stones or trying to trap somebody in a situation, but can we at least try to slow the train down? Because now the walls are, there are no laws. And instead, right? policy and laws are going in every country in every other direction. So right. you have this immediate right. divorce, like no way, zero no way, way you zero go. Way. And, and right. Which, you know, raises a question like, okay, so what's the value of the vows? What's right. the value of the promise that was made? Right. But why do you think people are wanting this immediate way out? Well, I think that we, as especially in the West, we're not as accustomed to suffering. <laughs> And, and we, you know, we have a pill for every pain and, and we're, and we've been sold a lie uh, basically through the media and through, and we've, we've been complicit in the lie. Wanting to believe it. Wanting to believe it. Right. But we've been sold a lie that, you know, you, nothing is worse than an unhappy marriage and your kids are going to be fine. They're resilient and you need to take care of yourself first. And, and, and it's really, and I think that's what we're not trying to, Again, sling stones. We're trying to. We want the best for the most people, right? Yeah, and I wanna. I wanna say something here. We realized recently that everyone except Professor Margaret Nairs on staff 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the asthma is a, is a child of divorce. A child of divorce, yeah. Statistically, it's usually not the case that the attendees of the asthma institute are because marriage and the, 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 the good of marriage is inherited, right, by children. Mm-hmm. So certain mm-hmm. values then get transmitted. And usually if you didn't see them in the family, that's not what you're going to look for when you're in college. But so I like to believe that there is a very small number of children of divorce who actually recognize what the problem has been in their life and mm-hmm. probably put all their effort in trying to stop the tide and saying, hey, Please don't, which is probably how I feel now about interviewing you, right? Right. And talking about marriage and the good of marriage. Because even though in my teens and in my 20s and probably even my early 30s, I would say that there's absolutely no difference. You know, I have my issues, but they do not come from the fact my parents are divorced because mm-hmm. it was right, because you know, it was better that way. Uh, and no one told me, I'm sorry, right? That new parents are the worst. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time, but I now realize that guess what? What statistically happens to every child of divorce happened to me too. Yes. I would like for, you know, those in the audience that can read more about this again in, in the in a small booklet and in other books that have been published. But what are these, you know, adverse effects of divorce? There are many. And what we, we want to say that it's not, you know, it's not a curse and it doesn't mean that you can't overcome, but I'm doing, I'm wanna, doing great. You yeah, know, just but we yeah. want to acknowledge the fact and that's, that's the thing. Cause the lie has been that the kids are going to be fine. The kids are fine. And actually um, the landmark divorce study, you know, 25 year follow-up and stuff like it's very clear. It was Judith Wallerstein, but the kids are not, are not fine. And this plays out in every area. So, so, um, you know, children, the girls that are raised in the home without the father, if the father left the home, because that's usually what happens, even though it's divorced and they're still involved in the child's life, they obviously are removed from the home. So the girls, you know, if, if their ch- uh, father left before the age of six, I think they're seven times more likely, check it, but it's around there, seven times more likely to experience a teenage pregnancy if they're, or an unwed pregnancy uh, in their youth, if, they're, if their father left. Which is not only psychological. I remember reading that there's something even related to the smell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's if you're raised with a non-biological male in the home. No, I, what I was referring to is like that having a, a male, your dad present makes the body of the woman, the daughter in this case, yeah. desire the body of another man a lot less. Oh, really? Because there okay. is a, there is Sorry. a balance. Somehow in this, yeah, I think sorry. I remember this correctly. I think, yeah, I was referring to the early onset of menses because I was adopted. And so the fact that you're raised with non-biological, a wonderful adoptive father, but not biologically related, girls tend to start their periods uh, one year earlier. They have a non-biologically related male in the home. So I was blessed with an adoptive home, but I started a year earlier than I probably would have. And earlier menses is usually earlier sex can can lead to earlier sexual debut and all these unwanted uh, effects. But things, I mean, it it affects school performance. It it affects lifetime earnings. I think there was calculated a study that was around $62,000 earnings penalty that could be predicted from uh, being a child of, of divorce. The ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, right? They are coming out with more and more research about how those aces kind of pay it forward. They they go into the future and you reap 
um, unwanted uh, benefits, right? Unwanted negative consequences from those uh, events. And two of the most common events are separation, parental divorce or separation. And often that's coupled with poverty, right? Or economic hardship. And so one thing they found is like long-term health effects because the the body gets stuck in like fight or flight and there's a, a stress response and there's chronic inflammation. And so I just, you know. Which again is not to throw stones because we know that sometimes divorce, separation is absolutely necessary. Stones. But if parents know. Exactly. And they're not told, oh, it's going to be great. Right. You know, whatever right. you do, right. your kids are happy. Don't you see they're playing? There's Just to be aware that there is, you know, that they will probably develop trust issues. That they will probably right. feel lonelier than their peers. Oh, they, yeah. They, and, and these effects, that's why I was like, the multiplicity of effects is, is just staggering and, you know, fascinating, but, but in a sad way. So, you know, can't speak highly enough about Institute of Family Studies and Brad Wilcox and, and all of their research over there. And I've been seeing recently how they've done you know, the harms of social media and teens and technology, right? The social contagion, you're, is that what you're referring? Well, no, just even just the, oh. the, the, the negative self-image and the depression levels of, of teenage girls, but also, but also of males, you know, and the negative influence of their being exposed to social media and the harmful effects of the internet and so yeah. forth. When you look at that, that's kind of across the board. That's going to affect all children, But guess who it affects more? It affects more children of divorce, right? Because they're split between two households. Less um, time spent less, with you and there's less control. Um, there's less control, right? There's less oversight. Oh, I think I was the freest teenager. Yeah. Then. And so it's, you know, it's not faulting anyone. But when you split the child, you know, between two homes, there's just going to be less parental oversight. Or there's one set of rules here and there's a laxer set of rules. So who's suffering more from those negative tech effects? are actually the children that are already uh, suffering effects from other things, right? From the separation of their parents. And so I think, and it's not to throw stones, but it's informing people. I was very glad to see a counter uh, example. Mm. An article came out from a woman who talked about, she was writing about how she had a good enough marriage. They were middle-aged. Their kids were, you know, I guess middle school age and She was successful, he was successful, and there was low conflict, but they just got bored. And she listened to the lies of the culture, and one of them just, you know, started another relationship, and they got a divorce. And she was writing, honestly, from looking back at, like, what a stupid decision that was, what a harmful that decision that was, what a selfish decision that was, and she didn't realize it at the time. And still having to look at what, what the home that, you know, they willingly tore apart, but again, have mercy on them, right? Have yeah. compassion because believing the cultural lies that, oh, you're feeling kind of stagnant in this relationship. This marriage isn't, you know, exciting anymore. Well, go find a new partner. And you what deserve she's, better. Yeah, right? what, what, and what, she, what she says, you know, the effects on her kids. And again, I say that with all compassion. I was so grateful for the honesty. Which honestly, I also think, you know, and we can't prove it, but the anthropology, you know, that describe us as, you know, embodied souls, mm -hmm. what you can't, you can't undo what your body is. You know, like the, the fact that you've had a generative union. Right. You can try to forget, but it stays with you. And so somehow there is a division, you know, even regardless of the presence of children and the effect of them, I, I have a hard time believing that it doesn't have an effect, a lasting effect on the individual that goes through it. 
It does. I mean, it does. Again, that's As part we were, of the yeah. cardiovascular, you know, damage and so forth that, that was referenced. And so, again, I think just trying to shore people up with knowledge of like, you know, really things can be worked out. In fact, there's a study that, that you know, again, many studies. And that, wait, wait a minute, because we were talking about divorce here and we're trying to keep that together. But mm-hmm. what we're facing is that people are not getting married. Well, we're also right? facing that. We're also, off, and but that plays into it, right? Because children of divorce are less likely to believe they can form that lasting union. And the more examples we have, right, of these, so the, it's kind of, we're, again, it's compounded interest. But I just want to mention there is like one study where pe- couples were seriously considering divorce and they went through counseling and so forth. And five years later, they were still together. They were surveyed and they were happy they had stayed together. Again, I mean, life is going to entail suffering and going through the experience of divorce is going to entail suffering because we are in a society where there's hardly any encouragement to try to work it out anymore, even for the sake of kids, you know? And what? It, why are we talking about marriage and not about cohabitation? Well, I think that cohabitation is honestly one of the greater threats to why people are not getting married because it mimics and, and it imitates marriage in, in that it can look the same And societally, you have a couple that's living together and often they're treated the same, again, with family and so forth. And that, you know, that's where they're at. But I think that's another thing that's very important to to reiterate to the young is that it's not the same. The the cohabitation uh, has, you don't have the same commitment. You don't have the commitment of... Someone has not promised you. No, this is not a total giving of the self because it's conditional. There's no... As long as I like you. As long as I want to be here, right? And so there's, there's great, much higher rates of infidelity. There's much higher rates of intimate partner violence. There's much higher rates of breakup. Even if, if you have children, uh, there's much higher rates of, you know, that union is probably like, statistically more likely not to endure, even if you have the presence of both biological parents in the home. Uh, it doesn't convey the same health benefits. It is some degree, but again, you're you're entering into a, a different kind of union. But because it looks so similar, right? I think it's very important to to make sure that the young know that hey, actually, the research is showing that your best bet for having an enduring marriage is not to live together first and to marry relatively young. Again, from Institute yeah, of Family and Studies, and it's hard for me to understand why. I don't know if it's part of the way I reason about these things, but I, it's hard for me to understand why someone who's been hurt by life would settle more easily with, let's say, a woman, right? Settle more easily with a guy that, that doesn't promise, that doesn't show that level of engagement, right? That Right. Rather, I mean, because what we're seeing is that boys and girls are preferring this. Is it like, well, it keeps me more free. Yeah, but at the same time, what is the kind of, interest in myself that I perceive. Like, are you so little interested in me mm-hmm. that you're really not doing everything you can to just get, maybe I'm being romantic, but like, if it's not, you know, if you're not desired to the point of someone saying, I want, I'm, you know, this is what my, right. this is my desire is to be with you. Right. Yeah. I don't know. What is making us have such a low bar? Well, I think in some ways uh, I can yeah. grab Mark's book here, um, yeah. Professor Regneris, The Future of Christian Marriage. Yeah. I think one of the things is that we actually, we have a low bar for 
you know, sexually intimate relationships, we have a very high bar for marriage, perhaps too high. And so he writes about how we've had a shift, I think largely because of economy and so forth, where marriage is no longer seen as a foundational thing that you do and you build life together, but it's a capstone. It's the feather in your cap. It's what you do when you have every other duck in the row, you know, all the ducks in the row, you've gotten your career established. You've gotten your higher ed degrees. You've got, you've done your world travel that you wanted to do before you get tied down. And so then you're hitting 30 and beyond. No, no, no. 42 or 45. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're still, believe me, they still think they're too young. And so I think, I I think that's part of it, right? So you don't want to marry and divorce, right? You don't, oh, we can't, I'm not ready for marriage. But then you're, you're asking people to have a very long period of, you know, chastity or sexual, you know, and so they're not willing to do that. And so cohabitation seems like, you know, especially for those that are not. But then, okay, so can we try as a, the consequence of this is that with cohabitation, you're going to do it for a long time, probably Mm -hmm. even when you're 50, because the more you cohabitate, the less you're going to desire marriage for other reasons, right? Because you have the other benefits. And so these will lead you not to have the benefit of marriage, actually. Well, right. So you will get, as we said, you know, the the outcomes are like that your children outcomes will not be as good as they could have been in marriage. And by staying in that, you know, it's like, to me, it feels like having a lot of chips before dinner, right? Right. So you keep eating chips and you think you're, you know, wow, you know, I don't have to wait for dinner. I can do this now. I know, right? But then, you know, that steak is just not gonna, it's not gonna attract you as much. Well, and I think that's I think that's why we have to really, for the sake of, you know, people are free to make their choices. Yeah. But you want to give them accurate, accurate information. Can researchers today defend traditional marriage? And is like, is the research, is academia willing to listen to these things? To I don't know things? if uh, I don't know if they're willing, but the data is there. I mean, uh, if you look at again IFS and Brad Wilcox and Wendy Wong and the and the and the success sequence. You know, if, if you uh, finish high school, work full time, and you get married before you have children, ninety five percent of people avoid poverty, and that's across the board for the races, every every ethnicity, minority sex doesn't matter. If there's the high school, there's it's called the success sequence, and and yet we want to. And if you want enduring marriage, right? If you if you don't want to experience the heartache of divorce, guess what? Don't cohabit. Don't cohabit because the the, the, it makes you the more research prone. so yeah. shows that it makes you more prone to have your marriage uh, more likely to end in divorce. And 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 I think again, when the common understanding of marriage as permanent, exclusive, you know, lifelong commitment, when that's watered down, then the sad thing is that. Young people are entering, it can't, even the ones that do marry, if they, if they enter into it under a reduced understanding or, a, or an erroneous understanding, then they might not accrue all the goods that they could have. Because again, it's just, they don't understand anymore. And now, honestly, it's never been more important than to make the natural law case for these. This is why mar- marriage between male and female under these conditions, this, these, this core institution, this is why it's a common good that leads to human flourishing for the most members of society. Now, to say that has to be articulated because now we have competing forms 
of of marriage, right? Now we have same sex marriage, and, and why have, not same? So why not same sex marriage? Why not same sex marriage? I mean, there's same sex partnerships, but they it's not it's not marriage, and it cannot contain these core. Okay, so say if we define marriage as the permanent and exclusive union that can lead to the procreation of children, then the same sex marriage by definition cannot be done. Right. But but the opposite, you know, the objection at the bar again from my mm-hmm. friends would be, oh, of course you can. Well, one of the two as a child, and you know, and then gets adopted by the other, and then you have the same sex couple with kids. Yes, with kids that by design is demanding that the child loses or does not have at all connection with one of his or her biological parents. Right. And so the objection again is, yes, but what if the previous marriage was abusive and there was no love? Isn't this better? Isn't this even better? Well, you know, it's interesting because the... uh, um, These are the kind of conversations we are required to have, right? Of course. And... Uh, but let's just take a normal situation of divorce. Yeah. You know, the tragedy of divorce, always a tragedy, even if it ha- is a necessity, right? This yeah. is a tragedy. Nobody marries yeah. with wanting with the, that to be the uh, outcome. So even if that happens and the parent remarries, did you know that that the remarriage does not improve? It doesn't really, uh, it's not like, oh, a replacement parent is all good. It actually doesn't have the kind of benefits that people want to believe it has for children and the effects that um, it's just different. Like they've gone through this, uh, they've gone through a separation uh, or at least some degree of separation yeah. from. And you from, have had this experience as an adopted, you, you mentioned earlier, you're right. an adopted child. Right. It's a wonderful family, but it wasn't like. Well, the, the, tr- the truth is, is that it has effects, right? We, it, because in the natural order of things, you're genetically, you know, you, you come from the union of two people and there's genetic similarities. There's the familial similarities. Smell, maybe. There's the, yeah. I mean, everything, again, think about the uh, early, you know, early onset monarchy for, for, for kids that are, for girls that are in. in uh, so I guess what I'm saying is, so when you, when you go to same-sex marriage or same-sex situations, you're automatically taking away two of the things that are known to make children thrive. One is having both biological parents present in the home and even both co- cohabiting parents don't have the same effects, even if they're both biologically related, when they don't have that exclusive, permanent, lifelong commitment. And why'd you say same-sex couples don't? Well, I'm saying even for male-female couples, oh, okay. if they're cohabiting and they have children, they yeah. still haven't made that permanent exclusive commitment. So there's still subject to higher rates of infidelity and breakup, right? So we're talking about not, we're not talking about our ideas of how things develop. We're talking about data. This is data, right? And, and, And so even you can look at school performance where children cohabiting with children with cohabiting mother, father, and they're both biologically related. Even the, even their school outcomes are not actually the same as married married parents, bi- biological male and female parents to the child. And perhaps part of that's related to economics as well, because marriage is a wealth-building institution in ways that cohabiting is not. Because Marriage is also very expensive, though. In what sense? In what sense? It's one of the objections at the bar. That's the wedding. That's very different than the marriage, right? Because the, it's very clear that uh, married married couples accumulate vast vastly more assets and income than either cohabiting or singles. 
comparatively. So I think that I think that you have bring up a very good point. I think we need to take a lot more focus off the wedding. <laughs> that synchronic slice of time. I think a lot of people of loved eloping during COVID. Right, and that synchronic like, slice of time where we're going to spend so much money and resources on the wedding, and we need to put that more into you know building up the marriage. But 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 I want to mention back, yeah. back to same sex yeah. marriage, and so this is just the nature of the the arrangement. So with you have two females you lose complementarity in the home. There's not a sex balance. There's no male in that. And that's half the human species. And we all come from male and female. And so a child is receiving only one of the benefit of, the, uh, benefit of only one of the sexes, either in male pairings or female pairings. And the other thing that you see is that there are different rates of stability and different rates of fidelity. So honestly, contrary to what I would have maybe initially thought, Female couples are actually the least stable. I'm not surprised. When I read that, I was just like, you know, of course. It's funny because Girls? for me, for me, I was honestly surprised. But okay. they actually, across nations, and we have enough data now across nations, it's consistent. They have at least double and sometimes triple the rate of dissolution. So uh, the thing with uh, same-sex male couples is they are by definition, you know, can't say by definition, but let's say that monogamy is certainly not a core component of those unions. So the, the rate of, of open relationships or non-monogamous, consensually non-monogamous, I mean, that's mm-hmm. not a feature. And that's, I think that if there's anyone with the same sex that is listening, probably can yeah. confirm if they're honest that, yes, there's less focus on, like, being faithful. Right. Um, well, I think, other. and again, researchers in the past had even just created a new definition of faithfulness, Right. So is emotional fidelity, but sexual fidelity is is more of a you know of a bug than a feature. The feature would be that these are open relationships, and uh, again, I'm not saying all, but the data shows that, for instance, you know the same-sex married couples in a American couples survey, the rate of men having uh, an extramarital partner for the gay males that were reporting was 21% of those within the last 12 months had had an extra partner. And among that 21%, the average number of extra partners were 12, was 12. And so that's, again, that's like six, at least six times the rate of infidelity that a male-female couple would experience. Cohabiting couples also. And of course, you know, objections can, you know, can balance right. out, but people are not reporting. But let's leave it there. As you said, the data is there, you know, and then we can read it. If you want to read it with a skeptical lens, you can. Right. I want to push back, though, when you said, Data is there, so, you know, I don't know if we can talk about this in the academia. And I want to push back because there is a reason we keep asking for donations. Mm-hmm. There is a reason, you know, that every email has a click button donate. Because right. this booklet was not published by UT Austin. Right. We are not seeing uh, tenure track positions opening uh, for people who have defended the good of marriage. And the data that Professor Regneros was the first one to publish caused actually a, a lot of trouble, right? right? right. So, um, I mean, I know you are an associate here, but I think we can say that we live in a time and age where actually we are trying to defend these things that are shown by numbers and that, but right. like we're not really welcome to do it. This is, this is true. Okay. Yes, of course, this is true. And I think, again, um, I don't know if you want to hold up yes. the booklet. So, um, Marriage in the Public Book, 10 Principles. Yeah, Marriage in the Public Good, and you can find that at the Witherspoon Institute website. It's supposed to be in the Canavox store. 
Again, Canavox is a go to canavox.org and it's got a Or to our website oh. and there's a Canavox dedicated section. Good. Too. Yes. And so that that link there, the 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 good that they're doing and trying to, you know, articulate this. But I'm telling you, it's more important than ever because now it, of all the harms that we're trying to prevent and we're trying to create human flourishing, again, it's not so much what we're against. We're we are for human flourishing and we're for human flourishing for uh, you know children and for adults. Again, this, this the health benefits of marriage I had no idea of. There's just so many things. And it ripples through the generations, you know, all the way up to the top and the older generations down to the younger generations. And if generations. you have kids, they're going to take care of you when you're an older age, right? Instead, if you are right. getting older and you're alone, you start realizing that no one is calling you. I have a lot of friends in their 50s that, you know, they didn't get married, that the bachelor syndrome. Right. And now they are afraid whenever they get sick. Right. There is no one to call and your friends have other things to do because friends, right. you know, and they're And that's not. why you want to, and you're grateful for married friends that have children, right? And that that there's a, a community forming that can take care of you and can help you as a single person. We're all, you know, we're all connected. But the fewer and fewer and fewer that marry, I, I think I saw the, the statistics, like one in six women now in America, it will reach 40 without marrying. I mean, marriage is at historic lows, and, it, and, and sadly, it's becoming increasingly a class divide, you know, because the upper, the more educated and the more higher income levels are still, they still are the ones that, that get the benefits of marriage. And yet we've, we've gutted out protections for the most disadvantaged, and it just creates more disadvantage. It's, it's, it's tragic. I think there was a 60% difference between married um, moms, upper income moms that are married 95% compared to something like a, you know, 37% rate for lower income moms that were married. It, it, it creates so many disparities. But what so I that if, to we, say, if we really were social justice or Oh, yeah. Right? You want to talk, would, yes. Yeah. I, 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 nobody wants, I mean, I, don't, I shouldn't say that, but no, it's not that nobody wants. But I'm telling you, if you address family structure, if you strengthen traditional marriage, if you get, if you can tie more family bonds together, father, mother, children. And Intergenerational that, too, right? Keep that yeah. intact. Yes, keep that intact. You will reduce mass incarceration. You will reduce crime rates. You will reduce abortion because most, most abortions are coming in situations of unwanted pregnancies, obviously, not planned, not wanted. Most of those occur in non-marital situations, right? You, 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 you correct the, you know, I saw the statistics about the men that are out of, not in labor force, not in the labor force, men out of participating in the labor force in their prime work years, higher than ever in the U.S. Well, you know, people can attribute to, there's many factors, you know, but it's one of the things that's reported is chronic health conditions. Well, if you think about the ACEs, you know, in terms of the adverse childhood experiences and you have men without fathers, men without role models, and uh, inflammatory systems. You've got kind of forces arrayed against them. I would it's, encourage anyone who's listening to this also to just try to remember and think about their friends and those that are more or less sick in one way or another or out of, and, and try to think about their family because I think that anecdotally we can mm-hmm. all confirm just among our own friends the truth of of what you're saying. Right. An interesting aspect of this, I think, you know, we've talked about the future of Christian marriage, the, the book that mm-hmm. 
Professor Gnerus wrote the latest one, but there is one that is still very contemporary in his mm-hmm. in its analysis. Is Chip Sachs is still I think is still my favorite because I do think you know you mentioned how there needs to be formation on mm-hmm. the good of marriage and like why it's good for you. Again, we're sold the lie that it's all the same, if not actually better mm-hmm. in another way with polyamorous. Right. Uh, right. But another thing that is affecting the market is the cheap sex and the porn world, right? Mm-hmm. Because right. I cannot but think that if men did not have access to women outside of marriage, yes. then we would see it, you know, a dramatic increase probably in the, in the next 24 marriage, hours, right? Right, right, right. right. I think Do one, women understand this? I think one of the things that I, I just, you know, thinking about contemporary cultural issues in wake of the Dobbs decision, if you look at it, there was at least, the, I don't know how much the statistics, but they were certainly hyping it in the media of the men that were seeking vasectomies, right, in, wake of, in the wake of the Dobbs decision. And, and so I, when I think about that, again, it just, you kind of hurt inside because, you know, people have just lost their way in understanding, you know, the good of sex within committed relationship and the good of children and so forth. And so that's absolutely, you know, a contributor. I mean, it, again, it, it, I feel like there's kind of this twofold, like the house is on fire, grab a bucket. You know what I mean? We've got, you know, there's flames, there's everywhere, but there's also so much to point to about the good. And I think that's, that's a critical thing. We mentioned in the update of uh, Marriage and the Public Good, the 10 Principles book, the gray divorce revolution. Mm. So now we have this, now we have generations that are coming of age and we've all imbibed the lies, right? Of just seek your own happiness and so forth. And so now we have uh, the upper generations getting divorced and not, not realizing the impact that that flows down. My, my in-laws are about to celebrate uh, 63 years of marriage. And the, the good of having, taking my children to the intact grandparent home, right? I can't imagine the pain that it would be if I was taking, oh, well, there's, you know, grandma and her spouse or grandpa and he's alone. They're divided. It, it just pays benefits. And again, then, then again, I'm, again, I'm not trying to throw stones because we've all imbibed the lies. I read stories and I know personally a story where the no-fault divorce is not protecting vulnerable seniors. So I have, I have a, you know, a, a dear friend and, and the, the husband is, you know, old, they're, they're older, <laughs> 70s, 80s, and he's got, you know, some dealings with cognitive decline and dementia. And so it's kind of mood swings and he'll want to file for divorce. And in the current situation, there would be nothing she could do if he if he chose to pro, you know push through that to protect. And she's you know she's the one that's caring for him. And I've, I've so again this it's just and people don't realize again the the financial impact and the, the disruption. How could you believe it at that age that this is really the solution? Where are we to come around and say you know it's worth saving? Don't do this. This is a you know, a synchronic moment, and you're being you know led astray. The actually protective thing, the thing that's going to lead to more longevity for you, a healthier outcome, a longer life, a happier life, is it actually if you could work this out, especially these marriages that have been already and, for yeah. decades. And if you do it younger, yeah. you know we have all the evidence that the youngest, the younger you are, the, the wealthier you'll get. 
the healthier you'll be, the longer you live. So we could say, you know, title of this this episode, go get married, do it now, right? right? And here's where, you know, I love working in a place that is not ideological Mm -hmm. and where I can say what I think. I have an objection there. And I want to talk to you about this because I think it's extremely important for those that have followed up until now. Mm -hmm. And they probably are on board with everything. So probably even, you know, for religious reason or like they believe in this. and like So what I'm witnessing is that in this same cohort, there is a lot of desire to get married and maybe this decision is also made mm-hmm. and it ends up poor. It ends up, you know, with even though, you know, they would have promised that no divorce would never have happened and there's no way, you know, there's like, uh, we're going to make it work and, and I'm witnessing it, right? So in, in the... In the socially conservative cohort of young and married couple, there is a good portion that goes through some very hard time. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I want to hear what you think about this, but you mentioned how we are believing that time is, that happiness mm-hmm. is in the, in the moment. And so we have this synchronic perception of life. So don't you think that in order for marriage to have all the benefits that we've listed, there needs to be a change in the person. Like in our, you mentioned we're being very individualistic and very. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, of course. And I think that's one of the things that makes me very sad about, again, as we see the loss of marriage across, uh, across the board. And um, I don't, uh, Janet Smith is a academic and she's written a lot on just the effects of contra- uh, the contraceptive mentality and so forth. And one of the things she, she just brought up, aside from that issue, but she just brought up having children makes us instantly better people, you know, because we start caring about something beyond ourselves. And suddenly you're interested in how good the school systems are, or you're, you care about what, you know, what the future is going to be in ways that you didn't when you, when you didn't have children. And my, and my point is just to say, I realized I, I, I got married at 37 and there's, I, there's a lament that I couldn't, have gotten the benefits of just having that self-sacrifice being forced upon me at an earlier age. And so I think you, you ideally for marriage to work, I mean, that's one of the things it, it, it completes the person through creating a, a inherent dependencies and relationships that require you to think outside of yourself. And so I, that's why I'm saying, I think churches need to step up to, for marriage mentoring. And again, this is for any, any human any young person, any anybody. But in our societies, we've lost family connections. So many more of us are coming from broken family family situations. And so we're all carrying around more aces in the first place, right? We're in a wider sphere of where, you know, the cultural understanding of why these things are even important are being lost. And so I, I think that even if someone has the right mindset and principles, like what is their formation been? Right? What and what are their wounds? What are they carrying in? So, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I can't, but we need mentorship to where we can wrestle with the things that we're dealing with. Or the men who want, you know, to be good husbands. And yet the constant drip of the IV drip of, you know, porn and that it's like being hooked up to morphine and you've got the button in your hand. I don't know what that's like. I know how destructive it is. I know that I believe, you know, ethically, all of these things, all of my objections, and yet I don't know what it's like to be a man that is literally walking around with a cell phone that is 
like an IV drip. If I get stressed, if I get, you can know all the right things, but man, I'm in pain. It's kind of like the, get me out of here. I'm going to hit that. So I think all of those things need to be taken into account, but that's why we have to come alongside one another and build healthier communities and, and become better people together, whether, you know, and, and hopefully that would lead to more marriages for and the I, sake of society. Because what, what, what we're seeing, Mariana, I think is a, is a hardening of the heart. I think there's a loss of love. The more completely, the, believe me, the, I completely agree. And the probably more, the reason I wanted to specify this mm-hmm. is that, yes, go get married, mm-hmm. but it's a fix only if you, it's a, if you love. Right. Go get married, but love within the marriage. Because if you think that it's just going to be an added good, you know, you buy marriage, you're going to get this results. No, No, this is not going to work. No, 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 no. You have, you're going in with a, again, that's that the, the book goes into the philosophical, you know, some of the philosophical arguments for marriage. But again, it's like entering into this, you will become a healthier whole, you know, more whole person. And part of that is through giving yourself away. And I think that. And that's the part when you mentioned the contraceptive mentality, the moment there is a contraceptive mentality. The moment you're not giving, the moment you're holding back, you're not loving completely and you think you're safe. You're not letting yourself be transformed. Am I, mm-hmm. am I right? Well, I think it just, again, that, 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 you know, children are now seen as completely optional. Like is sex is supposed to be an infertile activity. That is the mindset that we have. Sex is an infertile activity for pleasure and for mutual satisfaction for our satisfaction of desires, but but children are like an add-on. Whereas, in fact, sex is a reproductive activity, right? And, and that's central to, to the whole reason the system exists within the human body, right? And of course, we age out of that and marriage for, you know, singles that are beyond childbearing years still produces many goods, right? But I think when we have that attitude, that's why children can just get added on into any arrangement, right? Because the sex is about what's between, you know, the consenting adults. And and that's why marriage suddenly, when same-sex marriage was, you know, legalized and made into saying, well, these all these things are equal. Well, then immediately the calls came for, well, what about polyamorous couples? You know, why can't we have three people get married? You're being judgmental. You know, your arrangement is between two people. Uh, it can be any of the sexes, male, female, male, male, and why can't we have a third? And so children are always just added on. They're kind of the afterthought, whereas used to they used to be central to the whole enterprise. And the whole reason that really the, the state was most interested in marriage was to, was to solidify that, to establish relations, responsibilities. You know, you can, you can redistribute material resources to try to kind of rectify some of these inequities, but you can't, you can't replicate the, what, the spiritual capital that's in terms of the instilling of virtues and so forth. Uh, Catherine Pacolic has written on that uh, from a Nobel laureate uh, Fogel had talked about there's a spiritual capital that's, that's, that's passed on within the family. That's hard to, it's hard to quantify and it can't, you can't replicate it. But I think that's what, what, what I'm saying is in, in terms of the hardness of the heart of the whole society, right? I think there's, there's got to be a hardness when we, when, we, when we really do, like, don't see the good of the married family unit with their own children raising that. And, and that we don't want to encourage other people to see that as a good and uh, where we can even 
start reacting out, uh, against that. To actually call that a good is somehow to denigrate or yeah, disparage others. other people. Yeah. So one st- study that just came out, a survey results uh, that I saw Brad Wilcox had, had uh, posted up, was showing that, that surveyed parents now care more about their kids' career and income levels. They care more about that, statistically significantly more from this particular survey, than they do about whether they get married and have children. And so you can see this corrosive effect of not understanding what makes a human, what makes for human flourishing, right? So the very things that we were talking about, like, oh, okay, you're really happy in your career right now as a single, you've chosen to prioritize that, but actually look at over the lifespan, the amount of time that you spend alone is going to go like this. The time spent with workmates and office, your career, career dwindles down, then you don't have children. Where are those meaningful structures? Where's your community in the end, right? But now it's again, that, that success model of material things. Like we, we care about, oh, we want them to have all the you know, career advancement and stuff, we've lost our understanding of what the greatest goods in life are. Which is why I'm extremely grateful to you, to the Witherspoon Institute, for publishing a book that reminds us, right, of right. all the goods. And at the same time, I'm grateful to work for Professor Agneros, who writes in his last chapter of The Future of Christian Marriage, the kind of advice that people should, should give. And it says, you know, to the parents, be careful what you say. Oh, yes. Be careful. Just don't stop you know, focusing on income and career Because if you really love them, you want to read this, understand mm-hmm. how good marriage is going to be for them, how good kids are going to be for them, and right. then rephrase your advice, right? Right. Which my, I don't think it's that common to receive. I know. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I know my mom always wanted me to get married. It's interesting. But, but it was kind of where I was, even in my church group, it was more about what you were going to do. And marriage, if it happened, it was just going to happen along the side. Our discussions in our 20s and even mid-20s and late 20s, I mean, they were more towards what am I doing? What's my career? What's my, you know, again, that, that capstone model. And, you know, that's, again, the other thing with the, you know, fertility. Like people, women really think that they're equally fertile in their 30s as they are in their 20s. They really think they're going to get married at 39 And have four kids. I mean, and then there is all the problem that I think you also mentioned again in this little booklet of like the problems then with sperm donation and with surrogacy. Because once you hit that, you know, infertile, yeah, right. you, those infertile years, then you need to have a, find other, other ways. To, right. And and so the the what what are what are what is the science there? What do we know about sperm donation and surrogacy for by, by now? Like, why is that different from having your own, you know, having biological, for the same reason that we were mentioning before. Right, right. I mean, well, and it's, it's just a violation of human dignity of the, of the people involved. I mean, the, the child that, it, I, you know, I was born, you know, I was conceived out of wedlock and, you know, born to an un, unmarried mother and uh, given up for adoption. I'm grateful for my life. I've, my life is equally valuable but I don't have to say that those were the ideal circumstances for me to come into the yeah. world, right? Yeah. So the fact that I'm grateful for my life and, and I'm, I'm grateful for what for being here and so forth, that is, I can still advocate saying, actually, 
if we can have those marriages, those births occur within marriage, it's going to be much better for all involved, right? Which I think is very beautiful what you just said, because we said it multiple times, we're not throwing stones, but mm-hmm. also, you know, and I want to reiterate, like, there is no, oh, you're cursed, or this is going to be terrible. Exactly. Like, I think that both you and I love our lives desperately, mm-hmm. and we like our days. Um, so there is, like, there is no reason to think that, oh, you're going through a divorce, that's over, your kids are like, no, we're not saying that. Right. Well, We're just trying to show mm-hmm. the, the good that we have evidence to believe exists. And it is true. The, yeah. and, and, and we're trying to pre- prevent preventable harm because the fact is, is that the majority of divorces are in low conflict marriages. Again, that they are situations that could probably be worked out. If you can save any marriage, it's a win. You know, and when you've got at least two thirds of them that are not in situations of truly irreconcilable, especially if there are children involved, you know, you're winning and you're not throwing stones, but you're saying just, you know, hey, uh, just because, you know, these harms uh, have happened widespread, let's start trying to rebuild the wall here, you know, because we're getting flooded and it's affecting everyone. So with with sperm donation and, and surrogacy and so forth, I mean, these are just intrinsic uh, injuries to human dignity, the purchase of sperm to create an intentionally fatherless child, the, take the father out of the home. We've talked about all the harms. And yet suddenly, because it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like consensual sex, anything goes, right? I can do anything. I can hurt myself. I can do anything as long as consenting. So we have a consenting adult, like this, this is my desire. And so we completely just throw all that, the truth of what the child is going to experience out the window. So we're creating intentionally fatherless children. And again, you know, oftentimes people that are doing this are, you know, have higher incomes, especially with surrogacy. The income level required is is so high. They're privileged to be able to purchase women's bodies for their own use, right? But with, you know, with fathers, you're, the state goes after deadbeat fathers, right? I mean, we're saying this is not a good. The, the, the state is already overwhelmed trying to, to fill fatherless homes and fill those needs that are created. And yet here you have an industry that's, that's intentionally creating fatherless children. And I, I read, you know, the several countries have changed their laws and they don't uh, allow anymore the anonymous. Well, they don't allow the anonymous. And I think part of that, you know, honestly was... Uh, it's a human rights thing. You have the right to know your origins. I, I also think there was just pressure because with the DNA and the, you know, DNA, 23andMe, Ancestry, and so forth, yeah. I mean, it's harder to stay anonymous. But I think that that was one step you can take to rectify. Look, this is not okay. And then countries that have banned now commercial surrogacy. Right, banned, some have banned commercial surrogacy and some have banned surrogacy altogether because it's inherently exploitative, right? It's exploits... Uh, the yeah. body of the of, of, of and let's face it, what class of women offers their bodies to be used for pregnancy for others, risking their lives as the work of Jennifer Law and uh, Center for Bioethics and Culture just document over and over. I mean, this is they risk their health, but also their very lives. And I, I will link, you know, in this episode, mm-hmm. we'll link to um, the books, of course, that we've mentioned, some of the studies, and of course, there's a lot out there that can be found, even though maybe it's not academic and meaning, you know, produced by the, the tenure track professors, usually. There's one thing, you know, in closing, I just wanted to say that probably only after having worked in this word, you know, family, marriage, and I've been studying mm-hmm. these things, um, 
I st- I found myself, I've been starting to say to young friends that tell me they're divorced, it's like, I started to say, oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And I found how shocking that sentence is. Uh-huh. I, and I now know, you know, that nobody told me, but like, there's almost an offense reaction. It's yes. like, how do you dare be sorry? Exactly. Like, I'm I- so much happier now. So I don't know, is it that even countercultural to just say? I'm yeah, sorry. I do believe that is countercultural. And I myself have censored myself. In uh, saying I'm sorry. I've said it before yeah. and I've also censored myself, you know, and I've said it, I've said I'm sorry before. And, oh, don't be. So you I know, would like, okay. If so there's I, anything that we can take from this episode and this study, is that maybe we shouldn't feel awkward if we say I'm sorry, because we have reasons to believe that. It was damaging your, to, to your health, and that had to be a hard experience no matter what yeah. else. But you, it doesn't have to no. be a judgment. Exactly. You know, but yes. I, I and think, we're going to be there for you after that, you know. If, if yeah. yeah. We can't do, but again, we're at such a place of denial in our culture that, again, to even acknowledge that divorce is a negative experience can be offensive. And I, if I can just quickly, I know we're yes. running out of time. But no, I, no, no, don't worry. I, I, want, I want you to say whatever I missed. Well, I, what, I, what I want to just make clear is that for all the goods that, uh, reasons that we've talked about, reiterating these for the sake of the common good is so important. But especially now with the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, we have to reiterate that this is based on reason and the natural outworkings of the human person and human society that's based in hard fact of what actually happens in, in data to demonstrate that for nothing else, this is not based on bigotry or animus or anything, because that's now with the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act to advocate for natural marriage, uh, meaning man and woman, contrasted with other alternative family structures, such as same-sex marriage, is now being equated as being a racist and bigot, bigoted, as as if you were into as if you were against interracial marriage, and just came out where in Georgia a young policeman yes. had to resign because he posted support for traditional marriage and his superiors in the police force uh, to, okay. told him that that's tell like me, being tell a racist. Tell me what. Uh, tell me in the audience what does the Respect for Marriage Act have to do with this situation? Well. In Obergefell, when same-sex marriage was legalized, in that decision, it was, uh, again, it was a decision that was painting those who supported traditional marriage could potentially paint them as if they were against human rights, against civil rights, as if this had been equated to racial bigotry. Mm. uh, Because, again, the, the equal access was not being given. It was a discriminatory thing. And uh, there was reasoned dissent and also an acknowledgement in the majority ruling that people can object, you know, can believe in traditional marriage and can object uh, to same-sex marriage uh, situations and calling that marriage based on reason and come, come to it having reached through, through reasonable conclusions, not based on animus, right? And so that, that was at least there in yeah. the Obergefell ruling. But with the Respect for Marriage Act, by coupling it, literally making it a, uh, a conjoined clause, this will protect interracial marriage and same-sex marriage. You've made a false equivalence there. Okay, I see And so that. now we are, we are in, um, now there's a, an increased uh, desire to, pres- it seems like there's an increased opportunity, certainly, and that was what was warned against. And it actually can be seen, it's already playing out that now, to object to same-sex marriage 
you are now being equated. But are we objecting to something if we are showing the good of marriage? That's what I'm trying to say is that we... Because that's what we're doing we here, right? To. We're not telling anyone, don't don't engage in your homosexual relationship in this moment. I mean, this that's moment, not what we're doing. In this moment, all you we're doing... You and I, what we're doing yeah, what is we're doing saying... In this moment is saying traditional marriage is unique and provides unique goods to society okay. such that government should try to protect and promote it. And it's done and it's everywhere, distinct, And it's distinct from yeah. same-sex marriage. But now with the RFMA... Again, in the cultural imaginary and, and in media and so forth, it's going to increasingly be portrayed that as if you present this as, you know, you're making the case for traditional marriage. Oh, well, then that means you're, quote, you're against same-sex marriage and you're the same as, well, that, you know, that cannot be extrapolated from our conversation. No. This I, is not what we said. So what we said and what is written here is that marriage and the public good, 10 principles, there is a strict correlation between healthy intact family with a lot of kids and the health of society and of the families and of the children of the parents of the grandparents of everyone involved. Yes. Thank you very much, Dr. Anderson or Amy for uh, spending this time with us. Thank you for co-editing. Thank you for your work, your research. I know you're working on a book and we're looking forward to it. All right. Thank you, Dr. Orlandi. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.